This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you as always by Pelgrim Press. Here in the sporty glass bottle forbidding confines of the Lucas Oil Stadium. The convention that invented the role playing game. Gen Con! Depending on what you ask us. Stuff we might talk about this episode might include tabletop and adventure gaming, time travel, tradecraft, cinema, occultism, and of course, food. I think it's fair to say that our heads are full of ideas for games. Sorry, can't hear you over all these game ideas in my head. If you, cherished listener, are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games in your head. But unlike award-winning podcast hosting game designers like us, you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue! The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box. It's got a ton of generic components like meeples, cubes, Dice, tokens, and discs. And it's got a 200-page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing, with topics like refining your design, playtesting, crowdfunding, and how to work a convention. In short, the white box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash thewhitebox. Or follow the link in the show notes. You can get the white box right now everywhere tabletop games are sold. But Ken, here's the rub. I also can't even hear you over these game ideas. Okay, so Ken, this is the point where you invite the Patreon backers, our beloved Patreon backers, to identify themselves while I root in my bag for the Nerd Trope cards. Okay. (laughs) Beloved Patreon backers, without whom this show would have been canceled years ago, please make yourself known. Stand for your round of applause. Now, you will notice... I mean, it's not just these 11 guys. Right. (laughs) But thank you, you're the best 11 guys. Right. You'll notice how how lustrous and shiny and handsome all of those people are. This, This handsomeness can be yours merely... By supporting the Ken and Robin podcast at uh, KenandRobinPatreon.com. Now, you know what all uh, is coming next, regular listeners? The Nerd Trope cards. These are created for us eons ago, back when people made cards by writing with markers on index cards. And we have a Nerd Trope. We have a Nerd deck. We have a Trope deck. And uh, Do we? Do we really? Uh, we, we have some number of trope cards mixed in with the nerd cards based on the height of the two decks. But if we draw a trope trope, right. no one will know. No one will know. Do I know the distinction between the nerd and the trope? You do not, sir. I, I don't know. Do you know the distinction? I also do not, sir. So in that case, I'm going to draw one we've used before. Another one we've used. They've clumped. Those two are the same. War of Spanish Succession. Yay! Everyone's favorite war. And the trope is galactic civilization. Galactic civilization? Oh my goodness me. What joy. All right. Uh, The War of Spanish Succession, uh, real fast, is a war over whether or not a Bourbon or a Habsburg may occupy the storied throne of Spain. If the Bourbon candidate occupies the throne of Spain, 
Spain and France will be joined at the hip. There will be no more Pyrenees, the famous phrase of Louis the whichever. Um, let's say 14th. Anyway. Uh, and it's a live podcast to number the Louis. You've right, got to look yeah, it up. Right, yeah. Let's say the 14th. Anyway, um, uh, the, uh, the threat being then that there would be a Franco-Spanish superpower with all the gold of, the, of, of America and all of the armies and uh, tenacity of France. <laughs> Pause for laughter. Um, <laughs> against uh, that candidate was the Habsburg candidate, backed by uh, the British, who did not like uh, the notion of a Franco-Spanish superpower, not realizing from their vantage point how risible that would sound in the future. But um, uh, they went to war, of course, in Belgium. Thank you very much. So that's the War of Spanish Succession. Galactic civilization, however, took a different view. Now, if you know one thing about the Habsburgs, you know that they are weird-a-looking. <laughs> uh, they've got a strange jaw and a, f- a messed-up lip and a whoopity nose. Uh, they're the sort of thing that George Lucas saved for the prequels. That's the sort of <laughs> aliens they are. And I have given it away. Oh, how have I? The Habsburgs are, of course, an alien seed. Uh, their name comes from Habsburg, meaning the hawk's uh, nest or the hawk's roost. Uh, obviously, an aerial craft came down on some crag in Austria, seeded the locals with their filth alien DNA, and spread amongst them Habsburgism. Right. And, and people think... Oh no! This is an explanation. It's not inbreeding at all. They were aliens, but actually, it's also, also still it, inbreeding yeah, because you can't let that precious alien DNA just get out anywhere. But that is why they married themselves into the great uh, crowns of Europe. Uh, the famous uh, Talleyrand's famous line: uh, "Other nations make war; Austria makes marriages." That uh, explaining, first of all, what happened to European royalty, and second of all, uh, the Austrian. Um, uh, of foreign policy. So, the Habsburg, the aliens are spreading their uh, evil Habsburg DNA throughout the land, while also concentrating it in alien gel form in their own heirs. So, the question is not, does a French uh, scion sit on the throne of Spain, but does a human being sit on the throne of Spain? And now, we come to the Habsburg secret heir in Britain, the moon beast living in the in the castle Gloms. Castle Gloms, of course, uh, the, the Beast of Gloms, hidden up in a sealed room, a secret passed down from lord to lord, uh, until that uh, beast married into the British royal family. <laughs> so the Beast of Gloms is attempting to absorb the British royal family, while the Habsburgs are attempting to absorb Europe. So the Beast of Gloms is a little bit horsey-looking? Is that what you're He's saying? He's not, not horsey-looking. Yeah. <laughs> if you think of a horse that is uh, made of gelatin instead of will be made into gelatin... <laughs> Yeah. Basically, that's the Beast of Gloms. So you have two alien creatures. You have the horse beast Glomsons, and you have the Habsburgishnesses. And um, uh, just just for uh, random uh, uh, poetry's sake, we'll say that the Habsburgs come from uh, Aquila, the, the the sign of the eagle, and the um, uh, the double eagle, and the um, uh, beasts of Gloms come from the horse nebula. And so the um, uh, the horse nebulars and the uh, uh, and the uh, Altarians are, or Aquilans are engaged in a proxy war in Europe. Or uh, on Earth, in fact, because the War of Spanish Succession was also the first uh, global war with fields of combat extending from the East Indies to the West Indies. Canada, of course, g- gets a look in uh, as uh, they 
the, the French bravely lose Nova Scotia uh, after I, about as hard a fight as you or I would make over Nova Scotia. I right. feel. <laughs> because alien hybrids uh, have a known fondness for beaver hats. Which they of do. Course, yes. Uh, uh, drove all of the uh, uh, exploration into into Canada because the best way to hide those weird antenna on top is right. a nice, lovely beaver cap. It's one of it's one of the only uh, alien uh, export the the one of the only exports that Earth can make is beaver hats and maple syrup. Yes, and exactly. so obviously Canada is then as of never a strategic asset. Um, and so the we uh, do not like we don't want to be a strategic asset. No, so, no, yeah, let's no, not you do, do that. not. Uh, but so the uh, the war of Spanish succession is a war between Aquila and the Horse Nebula over the supply of uh, beaver hats and maple syrup, uh, fought out as a sideshow on the uh, field of Europe. Um, now uh, you may say, but Ken, every every child, every school child knows that the uh, uh, the hated British won the war of Spanish succession handily at the Battle of Blenheim when uh, the Duke of Marlborough smashed a whole bunch of barely affiliated French and Germans. Uh, into uh, literally Flinders or Flanders, as it was called at the time, <laughs> um, and the uh, and then the war just uh, continued for uh, three more years worth of paperwork, and that is true. Uh, but uh, if you'll remember, the beasts of Glam's have not yet oiled their way into the British monarchy. They're still up there in the Lords uh, Lovett, I think, of, of Scotland, and so the Glamsians are attempting to... Uh, they've got the Act of Union in 1707, which they carry off as a methodology of um, uh, of attempting to advance their plan of, of, of slow conquest in uh, as response to the beginning of the War of Spanish Succession in 1704. So the, um, the Beasts of Gloms have not yet completed their conquest at the time that their English would-be proxies have completed the war, so they must uh, extend their plan. And rather than uh, having defeated Aquila in uh, in, the, in the War of Spanish Succession, they begin to expand. They take over, as we've previously mentioned, sources of beaver and uh, maple, and then uh, begin looking around for other things that uh, that the world produces that they might uh, profitably uh, export, uh, such as uh, curry powder, and also curry powder. <laughs> And uh, that sets up a, a continuing struggle in India, where uh, the, the climate is much more clement uh, for alien uh, beings of, of uh, gooey form. They, they don't like the cold because they get brittle. Um, in, the, in, in India, everyone is sweating, so it doesn't look weird. Uh, so, so the uh, the war of Spanish succession sort of begins the overt period of uh, uh, of Aquila um, uh, horse nebula uh, warfare on Earth, which only ends. Uh, as uh, ironically as the uh, the moon beasts uh, of Glam's uh, take over the British monarchy in uh, 1956, when Queen Elizabeth II, who is a Lovett by descent, uh, becomes a crown queen. But by then, a new superpower has arisen, controlled by an entirely different alien race. But Oh, we're out of time. Right. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Robin. Uh, you didn't even get to the origin story of the magic beaver, but uh, it's time yes, for it's us time. to applaud. Sorry, sorry.
In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? So, uh, as those of you who know, I recorded before a live audience episodes uh, uh, go. Uh, we are going to ask for questions from you, the audience. Uh, and uh, so we need you to stand up, uh, talk in a nice loud voice. We will endeavor to repeat the question. If we fail to repeat the question for the audio listeners at home, we rely on you, the entire audience, to shout, repeat the question. Uh, and uh, I am going to pick someone who isn't even doesn't even have their hand up, and just look at someone and say, give us the first question. Give us the first question. <laughs> so there's some ghost writing of the question here. Right? Yes, it's by a Patreon Oh, okay. oh, yeah, absolutely. This is a Patreon privilege that you can jump in. That's, that's right, that you can ghost write a question. You mean her question, I'm sorry. Her question. Her question. Her question. <laughs> is, do you have any recommendations for, like, Buddhist um, cosmic horror and how to bring it across? Buddhist cosmic horror is the question. I, I could tell when I pointed to her out that she wanted to know about Buddhist <laughs> cosmic horror. Yes. Yes. No, no, no. Right. There's no need to no need to provide him groundwork. We're good. <laughs> Buddhist so, cosmic horror, right? Robin. So, so the horror, uh, I guess, Buddhist cosmic horror would be the horror be like reality exists. That's right. Yeah. Right. Dun dun dun. This actual world we're in with horror and pain and and suffering. It isn't just some weird illusion that you're trying to uh, detach from, but it's real, and you're then you're stuck. You know. So I guess you know. Buddhist cosmic horror is just reality for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there is um, uh, there there are a couple of uh, Japanese uh, uh, Cthulhu mythos writers who are in I, I think probably the top rank of people now. Uh, there's a guy named Ken Asamatsu who has also assembled anthologies of Japanese uh, Cthulhu mythos fiction, uh, and there's a guy named uh, I'm, I'm going to get his name wrong. Uh, Louis the Fourteenth. Louis the Fourteenth. <laughs> All right, we did not get it right. Okay, um, 
He's a fellow guest of honor with me at Necronomicon, so please go to the Necronomicon.com website and look it up. I'm going to say it's Dempo something, but I do not know his other name. So, uh, there is a tradition, let's just say, of Japanese uh, Cthulhu Mythos fiction, which is inspired very strongly, not just by Shinto, but uh, the sort of academic culture of Japan has a very, very strong Buddhist overlay, and uh, Zen Buddhism specifically. But those approaches, I would say, if you're looking for characteristic Buddhist approaches to cosmic horror, look to Japanese mythos artists. Um, the broader question of uh, reality and the perception of reality that Robin alludes to is very much part of cosmic horror. The notion of what do we know is real, how do we know it is real, uh, and once we discover that it is real, it is too late. Uh, that is very much a, a quality, I'm not going to say characteristic, but a quality of a lot of Buddhist theology and Buddhist thinking. So uh, I would say if I'm doing a from-the-jump cut at doing Buddhist cosmic horror, uh, what you would want to start looking at is the question of where does the level of uh, Lovecraftian cosmicism enter in? Is there a true nothingness? And I would say, in addition to Robin's, the rea- reality is real as the horror, also nothingness is horrible. It's not just regular nothingness, it's Azathoth. It is he is nothingness because there is a event horizon around Azathoth at which all reason breaks down, right? That it is, it's, it's like at a black hole where, where light and, and gravity and matter all sort of like, and then inside the black hole, uh, for the listener at home, I, I did that. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, but, but the, but the notion that, um, uh, all of physics breaks down inside a black hole. There is literally nothingness because we cannot, it cannot be measured, it cannot be detected even. And so the notion that the uh, nothingness that one aspires to spiritually is also as a thought, that it is not nothingness in the uh, freedom from things way, but in the you are destroyed and there is nothing way. And uh, there is, I'm sure, a school of Buddhism that says, yes, get he, he gets it. But I think by and large, uh, certainly to an American audience, even an American Buddhist audience, that would remain a little disturbing, that you're between sort of uh, the devil and the deep blue sea, quite literally. Right. Uh, and the, the cinematic reference point for uh, Buddhist cosmic horror, of course, is the uh, uh, East Asian exorcism horror movie. Um, and so uh, the uh, exemplar of this form is a film called The Boxer's Omen. Uh, which is basically if uh, Yodorowsky directed a kung fu horror movie full of gross-outs. Uh, this is from the, the sort of late Shaw Brothers era, and it sort of combines uh, scenes of incredible serenity with a complete uh, trash aesthetic and lots of act, you know. And the the evil sorcerers, the uh, who the uh, the monks and uh, the particular Buddhist abbot has to fight uh, and. Uh, uh, and dis- and destroy through their meditative powers are trying to seep into the world, and the way they do this is through uh, you know horrible uh, rites where there are extended sequences where the actors who are playing the the, the uh, cultists are uh, eating all this horrible raw meat and food, and then barfing it back up again, and then they give it to the next guy to eat more of it, and it's. I don't recommend this, uh, but you asked. Um, and, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but uh, clearly there has to be sort of a, a, a gross out element to the way that uh, right the, the notion that materiality is vile yes exactly uh, and that is clearly how the, the cultists are uh, summoning uh, Cthulhu or Zathagua or uh, or what have you and, and again it's very Lovecraftian I mean the Lovecraft is also about reality being vile so yes. it works out and repulsion yeah uh, another question Noel stand up hello um if the September 20th raid on Area 51 is the bailout, what was the esoterist operation that preceded it? Okay, so okay. the question is, uh, if the September 20th raid on Area 51 is the bailout, what uh, is the uh, esoteric operation that preceded it? So what do we need to cover up by having a whole bunch of uh, uh, sort of half-committed mean people <laughs> trying to get other half-committed mean people to show up and then get killed en masse. So uh, this means there's a lot of bodies stacked somewhere in a refrigerator, like uh, uh, how many people do we think are going to go after Area 51? Probably in reality. In reality, yeah. Yeah, about 8 to 12. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, 8 to 12 people got uh, got killed. Their bodies have been on ice. Uh, they've been uh, killed in a way that uh, mimics a machine gun, so it's some sort of outer uh, uh, dark entity that fires. It, uh, it's, uh, um, uh, it's incendiary bullets. It's right. like tracer bullets because the wounds are, have got the strange burning patterns. That's what, if it was just machine gun fire, they could dump them in the Caribbean and call it a day. Right. Um, and, and, and why Area 51, of course? Well, the Ordo Veritatis is uh, wired into the international uh, uh, security system. And so, you know, it's like renting your cousin's house. You have access to Area 51. So all you got to do is uh, strew some, uh, some bodies out there. And you also... Especially since all the real aliens have been moved, moved to Montana. But, you know. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, I, I, yeah, it's, it's just probably just your basic sort of a demon infestation in a uh, small town somewhere, some bucolic place where uh, a whole bunch of... Well, I guess they all have to be sort of memey, so it would be yeah. sort of in a hipster coffee shop uh, somewhere. Maybe, uh, maybe it was in Taos. Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it took a... If, if 8 to 12 of your friends have gone missing from Austin, this is probably what happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next question. Yeah. Uh, what... Frontier Western film or films would best match up, uh, match up with the Cthulhu Menace? Uh, so which films? Uh, well, Frontier Western Frontier film Western films are Cthulhu. Well, the obvious. What's the most Ken question? Right? <laughs> okay, right. Uh, well, the most Robin ob- will answer it. Uh, <laughs> the most obvious one is Bone Tomahawk, right? Uh, which yeah. is uh, tr- fighting troglodytes in the old. It's sort of a sort of a weird uh, Charles Portis dialogue-driven western that suddenly turns into troglodyte horror. So uh, all you got to do is a- add an idol to the uh, to, to their the cave. cannibal cave lair. And, and, and they, and they had, like, uh, petroglyphs already. Yeah. Barely even need an idol. Um, uh, symbolically, uh, the entire uh, concept is uh, summed up by the sort of uh, closing of the West moments, where someone has to do something horrible uh, in order to keep uh, civilization safe, but they can no longer enjoy it. So obviously, symbolically, you have Shane, you have Manny Shot, Liberty Valance, you have all of these that hit the big themes, and you can take any of those, for example, and say, oh, all the brothers and, fam- and extended family members of the rancher and Shane, uh, they found something out there. They've gotten a little wild out there under the stars, and if they win, 
then this territory is going to be tainted somehow. That sort of it's you know uh, welcome to New Dunwich, stranger, <laughs> uh, kind of behavior. Uh, so the the notion that you have to engage in uh, a, a ritual purificatory violence to uh, to end this uh, this ritual. Uh, uh, um, uh, what do I want to say? Toxic violence of the uh, of, of the of the bad guys is the core, really, of the of the Western in all of its forms. So it's all uh, cosmic. It's all Cthulhu mythos, uh, or at least the, the the core of the Cthulhu mythos. So the uh, the individual films that you would watch that hit that theme, besides Bone Tomahawk, which of course is the best answer, is um, you might want to look at uh, not so much for the mythos content, but for the uh, dehumanization of the protagonist, and that is uh, maybe some of the, uh, or certainly some of the uh, Jimmy Stewart westerns that he did with Anthony Mann, where the protagonist becomes more cold and uh, unsympathetic as the movie goes, and you still learn more about his um, uh, his his quarrel, but his behavior begins to seem more and more uh, detached. And sociopathic. So Winchester '67 uh, is, is maybe the the nonpareil, but even a relatively uh, middle of the road, uh, like Bud Bedecker film, like uh, Seven Men from Now, where a man is just going to murder seven men because he has to. And when you take it out of the sort of they need killing soft uh, soft focus framework of the story, uh, it becomes kind of an interesting story about compulsion and obsession. Now, it, it occurs to me that I had both the right answer and cheated. Yeah. Uh, by <laughs> this is Because it's already a mashup. Right. So the other uh, thing is, uh, where do we already have cosmic horror? A story of the frontier uh, telling us that America was just a bad idea. And that, of course, is the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, you could, I think, probably get uh, a mythos, you know, write a scenario that uh, kicks off from any of the stories in there, but the most obvious one is the one of the the impresario and the artist, where uh, Liam Neeson is taking this uh, quadruple amputee uh, singer, uh, narrator and performer around, except uh, who else do we know who has medicine shows who takes <laughs> around uh, so, uh, someone and uh, draws in people? Well, guess what? The the artist is actually one of the thousand faces of Nyarlathotep uh, drawing uh, people together in the wilderness to confirm to them that America is a very bad idea after all. Next question. Yeah. All right, so there's, uh, so when there's been mythos and uh, genre matchups, pretty much everything now. Uh, what, in your opinion, which genre works the least well being combined with <laughs> Uh The romance. Uh, any genre that is fundamentally... Uh, oh, what is the question? The question is, which genre works least well as a mashup with the Cthulhu mythos? And I would say, despite the existence of uh, mythos stories about uh, marriage or about sex, um, many of which are excellent, uh, the genuine romance, the ends-with-a-marriage uh, comedy is fundamentally incompatible with the mythos because uh, romance and uh, and, and uh, marital comedy is about rehealing the world and Cthulhu mythos is about the world cannot be healed and if anything, acting within it breaks it even further. Uh, you can do a uh, Cthulhu mythos story as a romantic comedy, but you have to immediately start subverting it. If I ever launch my much-dreamed-of uh, uh, a stage rendition of the thing on the doorstep. It is going to start out very much as a meet cute rom com, and then become ever more horrible. 
but that is not the same as a successful mashup. That is me stealing glory from the romance. Right. Uh, more specifically, the subgenre of romance that least works with the mythos is the Hallmark Christmas romance. <laughs> <laughs> The best of Ask the Geln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through. Uh, next question. How would you approach a horror game based around turn of the 20th century, um, like ballooning to the edge of space? I've always wanted to do that. I'm not sure quite how to for, for one brief hot second, I thought he was going to say... Um, uh, uh, a decadent fiction. Right. <laughs> so, uh, the question is, how do you uh, do uh, uh, Fin de Sretel, uh ballooning to the edge of space cosmic horror? And the answer is, of course... Uh, how don't you? How don't you? Uh, get your player characters into a balloon, then it goes into sp uh, the space. Um, and so, uh, what I would be tempted to do, of course, is bring in the, the uh, not the Lumiere, uh, Georges Millet, the uh, French maker of the earliest fantastic films, which were based on stage magic. I think he probably probably did uh, 80 Days in a Balloon. Yeah. Um, uh, and if he didn't, you can just say he did. And uh, so the the player characters think they are safe because they're just shooting a film in which they uh, head up in a balloon. But of course they don't know that. And we're going to have to make this a knockoff of Georges Millet because he's going to be responsible for killing people, so they've got to do a fictional one. They, they're shooting this. They go off in space and they uh, encounter basically, uh, and you take the all of the common mythos tropes. And of course, they're, they're not really on the moon. They're just on the plateau of Lang uh, because it, it's pretty much everywhere. And, uh, you know, use all the images from all those classic films with the double costumes and the skeleton costumes. And that's, that's who they're running into when they're up to. And, uh, you know, throw in a few cats from Saturn. Problem with cats from Saturn, of course, is they like to scratch things. And what do you, what's your conveyance that you're going to use to get back to Earth? Uh, a balloon. Oh, that's not good. No. Nope. Um, also, obviously, uh, the sort of um, uh, you know doomed exploration motif is is a natural. Uh, it, it's super easy. Uh, I would also recommend one of my favorite uh, figures of the era, the balloonist photographer and celebutant Nadar, uh, who 
uh, I bullied Robin mercilessly until he put into the Yellow King after much protest that he was not in Paris at the time. He was in Marseille, but, you know, he has a balloon. You're right. He has a balloon. <laughs> and he's amazing. He, he, he had the first neon sign. He's, he's a terrific fellow. He's not unamazing. He right. just was in Marseille. And so I would... <laughs> I would probably suggest that a man who takes as a pseudonym Nadar and has a strange photograph studio, experiments with glowing gases, and balloons to the edge of space, I might say, Nadar, is that short for anything? Nadar Lathotep, perhaps? (laughs) And I would start from there. I would uh, use that excuse to read a big, fat biography of Nadar. And if stuff doesn't dangle off that to drag your players to space hell, then read it again. Next question. Uh, biggest hurdles in doing a Twilight Zone RPG? What are the biggest hurdles in doing a Twilight Zone RPG? Uh, well, the most obvious one is that it's episodic. Uh, and uh, the next one is that the tone is very specific. So that it's uh, sort of uh, ironic emotional horror or a, 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 a sort of a cosmic comeuppance. Um, and so the the other part of that is you know, we have to be like Twilight Zone one to one, in which uh, your so it's an, uh, a kind of an existential mystery, but also the characters in Twilight Zone. The thing that unites them all is a lack of self awareness that they uh, are inherently flawed in some way, and then uh, they uh, come up with the. Uh, they basically confront their flaw, and then they're destroyed by the confrontation with their flaw, whether they're, they're a, a nervous flyer who's got a gremlin on the window, or finally I have time to read because everybody is dead, I've stepped on my glasses. And how to, those are uh, narratives, but they're not narratives of a character actively pursuing a goal. They're just trying to be themselves, and the, it's... And that turns out to be impossible. Right, and that turns out to be... So in a way... The role-playing experience would be uh, that the GM, pre- it's, it's still a one-to-one, the GM presents uh, the, is playing the character, and it is your job as the player playing the universe to confront them with their comeuppance. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an interesting way. The downside to that, of course, is that... Um, it would require a genius to do it. Right. <laughs> the other downside to that is that you could neither usefully teach someone to make scenarios on the fly or, I think, usefully write pre-made scenarios. It would be very difficult because... If only a genius could do it. <laughs> well, there's, there's, the real, there's the real problem. No geniuses. <laughs> Next question. Yes? We've heard lots of success stories about the, about your time machine. I like, I'm interested in one where things didn't quite work out like you're, like they were supposed to. What was going on when you when the Monster Rebellion was the consequence? So, uh, what time machine activity resulted in the Monster Rebellion? Uh, which Monster Rebellion? Oh, the 16th century. 16th century one. Okay. The um, uh, well, uh, as. As long-time listeners know, I have been asked by Time Incorporated to solve Ireland, I think, I don't know, what, a half a dozen times? Guess what? <laughs> First of all, it's an island where it's much harder to drink the relevant factors under the table. My skill, my skill set is not ideal there. It's like, hey, Superman, can you sort this problem out on a planet with a red sun? Yeah, or you can send Batman. Why not him? He's good. 
It also has no superpowers under a red sun. Anyway, I digress. Right. So, (laughs) for the benefit of the listener, this particular Munster Rebellion... This It's it's one of the uh, series of rebellions that basically uh, kick off in England, or in Ireland, as uh, the ongoing Elizabethan or Tudor-era settlement of Ireland begins. And when the Tudors uh, begin to expand out of the Irish Pale, which is the area right around Dublin, the thing that they basically did, and this is a big picture thing, is buy off local lords. And say, you can be a knight of the British crown, and you can get money, and we can stab your enemies, and it'll be awesome. And those local lords would then get too big for their britches, and the local underlords would overthrow them and dare the English to do anything about it. And this worked so well that Ireland was run by England for 800 years. Um, the, the English then would go and do something. The Munster Rebellion is one example of this, and... Uh, uh, without uh, my valuable caffeine, I cannot uh, name any proper names, but I'm a thousand percent sure that I'm right about the structure of it. It was Louis the Fourteenth. It was Louis the Fourteenth. That jerk. He was a terrible Irish king. Anyway, uh, so so the, uh, the 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 problem is um, you have to either get the Irish to knuckle under to English appointed lords or get the English to stop messing with Ireland. And neither of those is, uh, is is possible. The only thing that you can do, which is what I do over and over and over and over and over again, is encourage the native Irish tendency to feckless infighting to shorten the war as much as possible. And uh, that is what I, that is my standard go-to plan um, uh, after my desperate failure to get the Earl of Essex to rebel against Queen Elizabeth early during the Tyrone Rebellion, uh, when he made what amounted, uh, what, what I suppose we may count his bones in 1596-97 thereabouts. Uh, but again, that's the same pattern. That's uh, They did that to Ulster instead of Munster, but it's the same frickin' story. So, uh, unless you can suborn the English uh, uh, captain, uh, which is generally ineffective because they're not effective enough that their absence makes that much of a difference. Um, or uh, you have to um, uh, uh, basically collaborate with the hated British. There, there's, there's no good look there. And, and so Ireland is, 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 my, is my greatest failure as a, as a time traveler. And I apologize to my ancestors and, and uh, to Cat Tobin for having done that. Right. And th- th- there's a little behind-the-scenes uh, uh, secret here, which is that when Ken is hanging around the offices of Time Incorporated, just kind of busting everybody's chops and getting annoying, they just send it back to Ireland again. <laughs> Give it another shot. It's kind of a miracle it's only happened seven times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, assume that, that due to a uh, umla problem, you are sent to the other Munster Rebellion. <laughs> right, yes. Right. Um, and, and, and let's just go for the cynical take here. How do you best and quickest and safest turn yourself a tiny profit? <laughs> oh well, uh, the the great thing there. Uh, the, the, okay, the question. Okay, how do I go to? How do I turn a tiny profit, uh, which I would never countenance doing? No, bad time machine holder. Um, uh, how do I turn a tiny profit on the Munster Rebellion in uh, Munster, Germany, which is one of the many um, uh, uh, civic uprisings during the early period of the Reformation, and I want to say 1547. That about it, uh, and this one I believe was uh, kicked off by Anabaptists. So not only did they not like the Catholics, they didn't like Lutherans or other Protestants of any kind, and they managed in a fairly short period to erect a fairly terrifying totalitarian tyranny 
murder a vast number of people in the city of Munster, and then fall to the Catholic forces anyway. So well done, everybody. Thanks for that useful exploration into wrong theology. Uh, one of the, I mean, uh, there's uh, one of the characteristics of the Anabaptist Rebellion was the destruction of sacred art because it was a totalizing movement, much like uh, 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 the Khmer Rouge, um, and, and so they uh, stripped the altars famously in, in Munster that destroyed uh, any number of, of North uh, Renaissance works. I want to say that there's Durer's there, but I could be wrong about that. But uh, the simplest and easiest way to make pelf out of that is just to save that artwork in the next town over um, uh, and then come back for it. Ideally, you know, uh, come back for it officially in 1946 when you say, those Nazis, how dare they steal that artwork from Munster? Those jerks. Um, so, Ken, uh, obviously this is a trilogy of questions. Oh, my God. So how did you solve the 1965 rebellion on the set of TV's The Munsters? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, ironically, that was the simplest of all. <laughs> Not least because there were only six of them. But uh, the, the the problem, of course, was caused by Grandpa Munster, who was a, a rabble rouser, a, a old old red diaper socialist from way back, um, uh, and uh, he was uh, basically you know striking for better working conditions and everything else. And that the simple problem, uh, the simple solution there was to uh, break protocol, quote unquote, after a lengthy drinking session with Grandpa Munster. Uh, who may or may not have been introduced to um, uh, Rosa Luxemburg. I cannot confirm nor deny. But uh, to show him his Wikipedia entry. And it's like, it just says Grandpa Munster. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Think hard. Yeah. Came back, he got his residuals, he donated it all to socialist candidates. Everyone's a winner. Uh, yes. Of course, uh, Grandpa Munster, of course, is Al Lewis. Al Lewis. Beloved Al Lewis. But you know what? It redirects from Grandpa Munster. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> Next question. You in the green hat. You in the green hat. Yeah. What game or uh, gaming system would you recommend to non-gamers who are in their 70s who have never gamed but had a great time at their church over the mystery dinner party? Sweet. Okay. So the, the question is, uh, we have uh, some people in their 70s, they've never gamed before, or so they think because they've had murder mystery uh, dinner theater experience. What uh, rule system do we use? I think we still want to have something super simple. Yeah. Uh, we want to kind of, uh, but they, they, basically they've been LARPing already, right? Right, yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, and they're uh, probably in a retirement community altogether. So I, I would, uh, I wouldn't have them play a role, a tabletop game. I think I would get them involved in a, you know, a bespoke LARP. Yeah. I mean, the, the things that you can do in that space, and I think a lot of it is uh, you can look at things like the Sherlock Holmes consulting game, which is remarkably good for what it was. And given it came out in 82 or something like that, it still holds up pretty well if that's the direction they want to go. There are other, uh, like Robin says, bespoke LARPs. There's plenty of social deduction games, of which Secret Hitler is the only good one, but there are a number of other ones. Um, the... Uh, uh, they may or may not enjoy the irony of that, uh, <laughs> but um, but there are other social deduction games that if the part of the of the murder mystery that they enjoyed was guessing who amongst them was a murderer, uh, and then there's also um, the po the possibility of uh, other sorts of uh, games about 
uh, things centering around a murder. So if it's sort of a Gosford Parky type situation where the murder is their excuse to gossip, then I think that you could maybe uh, productively introduce drama system as the game in which it's the important thing is not that some person is dead. And this is like classic P.D. James mysteries. Um, Inspector Dalglish is going to solve that mystery in about nine minutes. But the novel is about how this dysfunctional social unit managed to tick along until the murder laid everything bare. And if that's the element of mysteries that they like, is the when a detective comes in, everyone has to tell the truth uh, uh, sort of element of it, then I think a drama system would actually play really, really well to that sort of thing. But you do want to sort of see what it is about that you know uh, murder mystery uh, church session that they enjoyed. Yeah, and, and the thing about drama system is you can bolt any genre on to it. So just find out what you know their favorite TV show is, and it's uh, Matlock, it's, right? Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. Uh, next question. I think there's one in the back before. <laughs> Looks like you. I would like to know your most controversial opinion on donuts, please. My most controversial opinion on donuts. Uh, and and uh, I am prepared to offer you asylum. <laughs> <laughs> if, if this becomes a national crisis. So uh, the uh, best donuts in Toronto are uh, Jelly Modern Donuts, which has moved now from my neighborhood, uh, therefore uh, becoming uh, you know less of a risk to me of always eating those donuts. It's become a catering. There's another one, though, in my within walking distance called Dipped that's fabulous. But my most controversial opinion is actually there's a Krispy Kreme donut that's pretty darn good that I like. So I'm uh, I'm perfectly willing to eat a cake batter donut, and I will I will defend the cake batter donut with Ken's life. <laughs> well, you shall have to, because the cake batter donut, while adequate, is the opposite of what Krispy Kreme and uh, and that school of donuts stands for, which is that's why it's good, light, airy, beautifulness. Um, and my, I, I was hope, I was worried for a second when you said Krispy Kreme that you were going to get my controversial opinion. My controversial opinion is the uh, entirely industrially created Krispy Kreme donut, which is a maximum of air, minimum of flour, uh, dumped in sugar, is great. <laughs> it's the cotton candy you can eat as an adult, <laughs> and I love it. And I also used to love, and they've stopped that now because the chain nearly went bankrupt. Probably did go bankrupt, and then they had to sort of claw back. But uh, it used to be that if you went into the Krispy Kreme, 
their employee manual was like, you know, all the problems that might arise. And then the last page was only offer free donuts. And so we, you know, you're out of the chocolate covered. Would you like six free plane? Yes. Yes, I would. <laughs> and, and so my controversial opinion is Krispy Kreme donuts. Yes. I love them. Now, are they jelly urban donuts? Not remotely. Jelly is pinnacle donut. No one can take that away. Sorry, Portland. But, <laughs> but Krispy Kreme is great. And I will defend regular Krispy Kreme with Robin's cake batter shortened life. <laughs> Next question. Okay, we've, okay, well, you, you allegedly didn't ask the previous question. <laughs> so my question is, you guys have both separately talked about um, plot hit points and then the quick shark system in um, the new Yellow King game. What considerations would you have about applying quick shock to a plot dress type system? Uh, the question is, how would you apply uh, quick shock uh, to a plot stress mechanic, or vice versa? Uh, so, a plot stress mechanic for for listeners at home is <laughs> right. Uh, it is a mechanic in which uh, things that happen in the story, either at the at a timer moment or at a GM moment or at a moment the players do something stupid, uh, causes an increase in danger. So right. the classic example is the starship is heading for the sun and um, uh, the, at a plot stress moment, oh, now the gravity is out. Oh, now the you know uh, air conditioning is out. Oh, now the shields are failing. One more fail, the, 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 the starship vaporizes, you're all dead. So unless you solve the problem, whatever it is, it's a way to uh, incentivize and make more exciting the you know roll-to-fix computers role that is primarily boring. Right. So what you do is you write quick shock cards that are basically uh, that go off at certain points in the plot. So uh, 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 for those of you who don't yet, you know uh, the Yellow King. Basically, there are shock and injury cards uh, that you get uh, when you uh, suffer either mental or physical stresses, and uh, when you uh, get too many of them, you get your final card. It's either three or four, and then your character is. Uh, out the same way they would be if they lost all their hit points or all of their sanity points in uh, Call of Cthulhu. Um, so uh, the card would read, uh, when you get to the warehouse, ask the GM what bad thing happens. And that's the only mechanical text or anything that appears on the card. And so uh, just having a shock card is bad. Uh, and then uh, knowing that something bad is going to happen, uh, I think is uh, plot stress defined. Yeah. Uh, and so th that's so it's just uh, you could write a whole class of cards where the bomb goes off, right? That uh, or, you know, if you read the book, a you know, an injury card could say you also gain the shock card such and such. And so it could be a threat of getting another card. So that could be just a purely kind of mechanical thing that happens to your player or a sign that you're triggering something in that particular scenario. Because <coughs> you can custom tailor cards to individual uh, scenarios that you're running. And you could also have, if you wanted to, in addition to the injury track and the stress track, the GM could have a hand that is the plot track. And as you do things, uh, you have you know failed on this, you may accept an injury card or a plot stress card. Either uh, when you tried to fix the computer, you short-circuited it and, you know, burned your harms really, really badly. Okay. Or you've short-circuited the computer forever, and now it doesn't work, and that was one of our plot cards. And we have three plot cards. The spaceship goes into the sun. 
And so it's like, oh, I do not want the spaceship to come and go into the sun, but I do like my arms. <laughs> and so early on, you're like, yeah, screw the spaceship. And then later on, oh, this is not good. This is not a good look. And so that, I think, would also uh, incentivize the proper fixing of computers. Uh, Next question. Whose dust was in vial 118 and why was Joseph Kerwin so terrified of it? That is a great question. So, whose dust was, whose dust was in vial 118 and why was Joseph Kerwin so terrified of it? Uh, this is in the uh, case of Charles Dexter Ward. Uh, Marinus Willett is, is screwing around in a necromancer's laboratory like you do and he dumps out one of the jugs labeled 118 and just helling around reads the resurrection spell off the side of the wall. Oh, he's such a good player. Um, such a terrible player character, but such a good player. Um, and sure enough, he resurrects a bearded entity with terrifying eyes that, you know, basically uh, knocks him out and, 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 and leaves a note in his pocket. Uh, and the note says, um, uh, in Anglo-Saxon unseals of the 8th century, uh, burn uh, Kerwin with acid, um, uh, and then I'll take care of everything else, basically. So he's he, he's magically woke. He's from the eighth century or thereabouts. He has terrifying eyes and a beard. And Kerwin knew that he would terrify you because when Willett confronts Kerwin, he's like, "Oh, you looked in one eighteen. I'm surprised you had the guts to do that." <laughs> Without realizing, oh, but also he hates you um, because Kerwin. So the so the questions are: He's magically woke. He's famous because he assumes that. Willett would have recognized his name. He's from the eighth century, and he's badass. So the um, so the question. Normally, people say Merlin. That's your standard answer. He's bearded. He's magic. He's got creepy eyes. He is not remotely from the eighth century. He would have been writing in Welsh, not Anglo-Saxon. But maybe he recognized the English words that Willett was babbling and said, "Well, as Merlin, I know all languages," and just banged something out in a alphabet that would not exist for two hundred years after his death. But Merlin is the standard answer, and I think for most people it works. Uh, in the upcoming Borellus Connection from uh, Pelgrane Press, we have come up with a better answer. And the answer is that there is a village on the side of Sherwood Forest called Teversal, which is from the Anglo-Saxon, which means Wizard's Castle. And uh, I am a, a fan of finding... Uh, uh, like uh, uh, Tolkienian stuff in history because it's more fun than putting it in dumb Middle Earth. So I thought, oh, this is Saruman. He dug up Saruman. <laughs> How great is that? But you can't say Saruman in a source book because then you'll be sued. <laughs> and also, in reality, Willett wouldn't recognize the name Saruman, so it doesn't work that way. So my theory is, and here's my great theory, Kerwin thought, because remember, he doesn't know what's in all the tombs. That's an element that's been mentioned in the story. He thought it was the tomb of Robin Hood, Sherwood Forest. And he thought Robin Hood was a witch because Margaret Murray, Lovecraft's god of anthropology, said straight up, Robin Hood is the leader of a witch's coven. He is the black man. And so Kerwin thinks, this is near Athotepa's Robin Hood. What a great thing to dig up. I love this guy. And so he steals he wrote, from the rich and gives to the cosmos. And gives to the cosmos. <laughs> gives to Josiah Kerwin. And so he writes down on his little tag, Robin Hood. And he's like, oh, that's the people steal this all. Number 118. So um, uh, he thinks that the guy has dug up Robin Hood. When in fact, he's dug up the Saruman, this Anglo-Saxon 
bad guy sorcerer from Sherwood Forest from hundreds of years before Robin Hood. So it's a hilarious comedy of errors all around, in my version, but uh, the answer is Saruman. <laughs> and, and that's how uh, uh, cosmic horror works in romantic comedy, is they're both <laughs> horrible undead sorcerers from different dimensions who meet cute. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I just translated Saruman into Anglo-Saxon, by the way. So when you read it in the book, that's what it is. Uh, so I believe we have time for one more scintillating question. Who wishes to scintillate for us? How would you make a role-play game from the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror thrill ride? <laughs> <laughs> theme parks in general, the Disney theme park experience, what's the uh, mix of that and cosmic horror? So how do Disney theme parks not relate to cosmic horror? <laughs> um, so it's just... Uh, there's already a, a, a horror film sort of shot, run and gun at, uh, at Disney. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not a good one. No, no. it's not. That's right. What would be a good one? <laughs> yeah. First of all, theme park rides, there's two different kinds. There's uh, sort of narrative rides, which include dark rides generally. Uh, and this is a ride where you're basically going past an animatronic and you're learning a lesson and singing a song about a dinosaur. And maybe you're taking part in the Indiana Jones adventure, but it's not really... Uh, viscerally terrifying. And there's roller coasters, which are viscerally terrifying because that is literally the whole point of them. And there are some themed they roller terrify coasters. terrify your viscera. Right. And there, and there are some themed roller coasters, but uh, as I've said before, the roller coaster mechanic is the core of all good horror design um, or scenario design. And uh, the notion of cosmic horror roller coaster, uh, I think, would be a tough get to do at the table because roller coasters are so body-centric and so very little... You don't have to think about why you're scared of a roller coaster. You're on a damn roller coaster. And it was probably maintained by a guy with no thumbs. <laughs> um, so that's the cosmic quote. I mean, in fairness, the scaredest I've ever been on a roller coaster was I was on some roller coaster at Six Flags Great America or some other theme park that won't sue us. Um, and... We got into the thing, and the, the and the it starts forward, and we're like, yes, yes, roller coaster, this is going to be great, and it stops with a certain. <clears throat> it's not a good noise. None of them are good, but that was an obviously bad noise. And the kid running the thing was like, ah, and he pulls on the lever a little bit, and we're like, um, and he goes <laughs> back to the little dock. And he says, everyone, get out of the roller coaster. Oh yes, yes, sir. So we all get out of the roller coaster, and he does this a little bit. And he punches a couple of buttons ineffectually. He says, okay, it's fixed. And we're like, it is not fixed. <laughs> you are lying. But we paid our $9 or whatever, so we all get back into the roller coaster because that's what your life is worth. <laughs> and he pushes it forward, and this time it goes grind, and then chink, chink, chink. And when we pass that little moment, it slows down just enough to let us know nothing was fixed. And then it sort of gets over that rusted out piece of metal or whatever was the real problem and then you're off on the roller coaster trick, 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 and, it, and now you're just existentially terrified of every noise on the roller coaster <laughs> and it's not because there might be a ghost there or it was built by Azathoth it's because you know for a fact you are on a broken roller coaster it's, it's, that, it's that obscure horror the fear of death <laughs> yes very very subtle very uh, seldom done so I would say the way to uh, model a cosmic horror roller coaster is to go on that roller coaster. Right. <laughs> so the the uh, theme park thing that I have introduced into a game to disturb the players was they were trapped in It's a Small World After All. Oh. Oh. 
Stuff having once again been talked about. It's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hell Grain Press. Dark Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. <laughs> Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. I have ordered six dozen of our felineiest shirt, Valhalla Cat. And he's also wearing Start With Earth. Start With Earth. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Yeah.